Last week, many of us, by the grace of God, many of us were confronted. The mirror, if you will, of God's holy word was brought before our faces. Many of us were not pleased with what we saw. Why? Because we, that is you and I together, we were exposed, weren't we? Exposed for our lovelessness towards Christ. One dear brother said to me, Pastor, you seemed troubled last Lord's Day. Yes, my dear brother, I was, I was troubled. I was sorrowful even. Even as I sat to prepare the sermon from last week, I was troubled. I was sorrowful. Admittedly, last week, even as I was preparing the sermon, I could barely go from one page to the other without feeling the weight of my own departing from my first love, Christ. And when I preached, Christ was walking about in my own heart convicted me of my own sin even more and more as I preached. I was sorrowful. When we are confronted with our sin, we should be sorrowful. For Christ, who searches hearts and who searches minds, He also walked among us last week and searched our hearts, searched our minds, Convicted his people, his bride, of our adultery, of our leaving our first love. Christ knows. And last week, Christ who knows all asked us simply this. Why? Why have you left me? He asked us, what have I done to you? How have I wronged you? What evil has I, have I done against you? He asked. In what ways have I not shown you the, the length and the height and the, the breadth of my love toward you? And I think all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, all of us who have been truly regenerated in our hearts, if we were honest, we really didn't have an answer, did we? Meaning there was no excuse. I didn't have an answer. My only response was sorrow. And I wept just as you wept. And dear ones, since last week, might I ask you, what was your response, not during the sermon, what was your response the evening after that sermon? Later on that day, were you still sorrowful? We were sorrowful during the morning sermon, but what was your response to that sermon the morning after? The morning after you heard the word of God ministered in your ear, and the morning after it so penetrated your heart and mind, what was your response the next day? Let's progress throughout the rest of the week. What was your response like? 
throughout the rest of the week. And what I am asking is this, what changed? What changed in our love and what changed in our devotion to Christ? Did your time of fellowship and communion, did it change for the better? Was your time in your closet of prayer, was it sweeter and more sincere? Was your time in God's word more fruitful, more intentional? What about your witnessing to the unbelieving world? Did you pray for more opportunities and did you take them when they were presented? Did you find yourself praying for unbelievers to come to Christ? What changed? Because many of us love sermons like the one that we heard last week. They they move us for the moment. But it is a very sad thing if they don't last for a lifetime. Did we go on after that sermon just like we did before we ever heard that sermon? Did anything change? The scary thing is that we can hear a sermon like that and, and live life as if we had never heard it. Nothing changed. Not our prayer, not our reading, not our witnessing, not our care nor concern for the lost. Again, almost as if we've never heard it. You and I were sorrowful. But what did that sorrow lead you and I to? With last week's sermon, there can be, listen to this, a wrong temptation. To look within instead of looking away from ourselves and looking unto Christ. The only solution to last week's sermon was look to Christ. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and return. Last week's sermon was not an encouragement either for you to ready yourself for the grace of God. It was not some sort of Prepare yourself so that you can receive God's grace. It was rather, run to the cross and find grace there. Does that make sense? It was not a call for you to make a list of all of the things that you must do in order to receive the grace of Christ and the love of Christ. Our temptation, I'm sure, is for many of us to sit down and begin to evaluate all of the ways in which we've offended Christ, right? Or walked away from our first love. And simply count the ways. Count our sins. Yes, I've done this. Yes, I've done that. Yes, I've done this. Yes, I've done that. And we can make a long list of all of the things that we've done. And still, though we are sorrowful, not truly repent. Though we are sorrowful, not turn and fix our eyes on the only one who is the solution to all of those lists of ways that we've offended Christ. That would be dangerous. Just as the bitten Israelites looked to the brazen serpent as the only remedy for their healing, so we may sit down, study our disease, and be sorrowful over it, 
and still remain sick. Unless we look to Christ, we will find no cure. But there is no cure found outside of Christ. Today, then, I would like to not necessarily expound upon a text as we normally do, but rather I would like to expound upon a doctrine and ask the Holy Spirit to give your heart and my heart the desire to truly repent of our sins and turn to Christ. Let's turn then to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse... Chapter 2, I'm sorry. No, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter... I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for that you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, they were, and if you know anything about the church of Corinth, they were a church that I'm sure no pastor aspires for their church to be like. They were a church that caused the Apostle Paul much grief. They were a church that he toiled over so that he might present them mature in Christ. And it seemed that the harder that he worked to help them mature, the more they pushed back against him, the more they resisted the Word of God. And so in his first letter, the Apostle Paul sends many things in relationship to correction, to rebuke, and to instruction. Can I say, just as a side note, for us as believers, we should desire correction. We should desire rebuke. We should desire instruction. For in these things we are able to mature and we are able to grow. Let us not be offended by these things. Do not be offended by correction. Do not be offended by rebuke. Do not be offended by instruction. For in these things we mature. Without these things we will not grow. The Apostle Paul sent this first letter containing all of these elements. And admittedly, he knew that all that he had written would cause much sorrow within the church. We are never happy when we are confronted with our sin. We are only happy after the fact of being confronted of our sin. Much later are we happy about being confronted of our sin. Immediately, our walls immediately are risen when we are confronted with any kind of wrongdoing. The Apostle Paul knows he is even torn. Torn over whether or not he should write the letter. Torn over whether or not he should send the letter. And he finally writes it. He finally sends it. And he says, I did not regret it. I did not regret sending the letter. 
and yet I did regret it. You, you can see the, the, the terror, the, the being torn within that Paul is experiencing. I did not want to send it, but I sent it. And now Paul receives a report, as you continue to read on. Paul receives a report from his co-laborer, Titus. And Titus reports to Paul all of the good, all of the good, or all of the fruit that has been produced because of that letter. And when Paul receives this report, he cannot contain his joy. He is leaping within with joy. Why? Because the letter has produced godly sorrow. A godly sorrow that has led to repentance and repentance leading life to life. Rather than a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow that only leads to death. He saw, the apostle, that the letter caused pain. But that letter was used by the Lord to be his pruning knife in the church of Corinth. And all of his anxiety has turned to praise. Many of us left our time of worship last Lord's Day sorrowful. I'm not the Apostle Paul. But my concern was that I knew last week's sermon would cause sorrow, for it caused me great sorrow as I prepared it. But my concern was this. What would be the effect? What would be the result of our sorrow, what would it produce? A worldly sorrow that would lead to death or a godly sorrow that would lead to repentance in life? This morning, and this is uh, my gift to any of you who would like it, this morning I would like to employ the works of Thomas Watson in order to help us see the true marks and lifestyle of repentance. What it is and what it is not. And this morning I have five points for you. And each of them will be presented, except for the final two, I think. Each of them will be presented in the form of a question. So number one. This will be here for anyone who wants it afterwards. Number one. Do you see your sin? Do you see your sin? Brothers and sisters, did we see our sin last week? Was it clear to you as the sermon was delivered into your ears? As the word of God was brought to your souls, did you see how you offended God? A man must first see his sin before he can repent of his sin. A man must first know the plague and disease of his own heart before he can be sorrowful over it. So then, last week, what did you see? The mirror of God's word was held up before our eyes. And when we peered into the depths of God's word, what was it that you saw? Let me ask you this. 
Did you see innocence? Did you see no fault? Did you see, as the word of God was brought before your eyes, no guilt? Did you walk away like Judas Iscariot when Christ revealed his evil plan, saying, surely not I, Lord? Imagine the very one who would reject and betray the Lord of glory says to him to his face, surely not I. Did you begin to make excuses for your sin? Did you begin to say, well, well, I don't pray because my schedule has changed. Or I don't fellowship and commune with God because of the, the turmoil that has been going on in my life. You don't know the half of it. I cannot pray. I cannot commune with God. I have no time for reading His Word. Or maybe you sat there. And maybe there were no excuses. Maybe there were no defenses. Maybe you sat there and your heart was just as cold and as hard as it was when you sat down. What did you see? Did you see the ways in which you ceased loving Him as you once did? Have you seen that it is not God who has left your side, it is you and I who have left God's side? My dad used to tell a story in the prisons when he would preach of a time when my mother asked him, remember, honey, when we used to drive together and take long drives and I would sit so close to you and you would put your arm around me. Remember when you would sing in my ear the, the oldies as we would drive through the mountains. Remember how we loved each other so. And my father would say, yes. Yes, I remember. Yes, I remember those things. And her response after all of his yeses were, What happened? Why don't we do those things anymore? My father, being as quick-witted as he was, said to her, Honey, I have not moved. I'm still sitting in the driver's seat. You're the one who's now way over there. Did you see that it was you and I who moved and not God? We confess He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. We are the ones who have changed. God has not. God will not. What did you see? Where there is no sight for sin, there can be no repentance. We are all quick to see each other's faults, are we not? As I said last week, we were even quick to say, under our breath maybe, I wish sister so-and-so was here. She really needs to hear this one. We can so easily search out the sins of others, but we are so blind to our own sins. That's why they are rightly called blind spots. And why? Why is it so easy for us to see everyone else's sin and not our own? Because we love ourselves. Surely not I, Lord. We idolize ourselves. Therefore, we are blind and ignorant of our sins unless God, by His grace and in His mercy, gives to us new eyes. And 
don't you want those eyes? Don't you and I want the eyes that see as God sees, that hates what God hates, and wants what God wants removed, removed from our lives? True repentance sees its sin. True repentance sees and it says it's, it's as clear as day. They are mortified by their sin. They cannot deny it. It is there. True repentance never makes an attempt to excuse its sin. It says, yes, I see it. Yes, I see it, Lord. And I am guilty. I am guilty of that sin. But it does not stop there. Number two. Were you sorrowful over your sin? 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. Without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Thomas Watson in his book said, He that can believe without doubting, suspect his faith. And he that can repent without sorrowing, suspect his repentance. Suspect his repentance. Sorrow for sin. It is holy agony. Ambrose called it an inward agony of the soul. It is sorrow of the heart. It literally means to have the soul crucified. Sorrow. Did you agonize? Over what God showed you from his word last week. I did. I did. Openly. Zechariah 12.10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn. It is a sorrow that when confronted with the gospel is cut to the heart and it pleads, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul was encouraged by the church of Corinth because their sorrow was a sorrow that led to repentance, true repentance, which leads to life. Dear ones, there is sorrow and there is sorrow. There is worldly sorrow and there is godly sorrow. And what's the difference? Is not sorrow sorrow? No, it is not. Not in the least. Worldly sorrow. It is sorrowful over consequences. The consequences of sin. Godly sorrow is sorrowful for sinning against God. And for taking for granted the grace of God that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? Worldly sorrow is concerned about the damage done to a reputation. Godly sorrow is concerned about the offense that has been, that has been uh, toward God. And the offense that damaged our fellowship and communion with God. Worldly sorrow is concerned with worldly affairs. Godly sorrow is concerned with godly affairs. Are there any examples of this? When David was found out. What a phrase. When David was found out by God through the prophet Nathan for his sin against Uriah, putting him to death. For his sin against Bathsheba, committing adultery. For his sin against Joab, the leader of his army, using him as the tool to put Uriah to death. 
when his sin was found out against all of the parties involved, David was sorrowful for his sin. He said, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me, he says. But when he confesses his sin in Psalm 51, he does not say against Uriah, I have sinned, although he did. He does not say against Bathsheba, have I sinned, although he did. He does not say even against Joab or all the other parties that are involved, I have sinned. Instead, he says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of all of the people that he has offended, of all of the people that he has sinned against, the only one that is most concerned, that David is most concerned with, is God alone. I have sinned against you, God. The sorrow of his sin was not so much all of the other things, although they were a concern for him. His number one concern, his number one source of sorrow, is I have sinned against God. He is much like the prodigal son who, when he returned to his father's house after his sin and debauchery, he confesses to his father, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. No, that's not what he said. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. His first offense was to God and then to his father. And godly sorrow mourns over sins that have been revealed deep within the hearts because it has offended God. And that alone is the reason for sorrow. And godly sorrow causes a, a woman to stand at the feet of Jesus weeping. The, the, the sorrow of her heart pours out of her eyes. And she blesses God that she can weep. She blesses God that for once, for once she can finally feel the weight of her offense to God. How many times in our lives have we sinned and then for whatever reason, by the grace of God, we are finally given a heart to feel that offense, to feel that we have sinned against God. Have you had any sorrow over sin? Or do you feel like grace is something that is owed to you? Something that you deserve. Have you not been so overcome at times with grace that has been given to you that you just don't deserve? Not in a superficial way, but a holy agony in recognition of your unworthiness and sin against God. What is it that God desires of his people? What does God want? David knew. He said it in that 51st Psalm. The sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite heart. It is sorrow. It is refusing to look up to heaven, but beating your chest and saying, God, merciful to me, a sinner. It is putting on sackcloth. 
It is putting dust on your head and confessing, I am nothing but dust. I am nothing but dust. In the church of Corinth, there have been different kinds of sin. Sexual sin. A sexual scandal even. Alienation of the church. Pride. Cliques were forming. And wouldn't it be a shame if there was only embarrassment over what had been revealed and not God beside wouldn't it be a shame if there was only a feeling of damaged reputation. And that was Paul's concern. That they would only feel like, I've been exposed. I've been shamed. One of his fears was that if there was not a real work of grace, then that would be the church's response. Worldly sorrow is only concerned of earthly things. I've been exposed. I've been, uh, the covers have been pulled off, if you will. And now I will lose my job. And now I will lose my son. Now my children will think poorly of me. Now all of the church knows that I've been a phony the whole time. Worldly sorrow is only concerned with those concerns. But godly sorrow, oh, I have offended a holy and righteous God. I have broken fellowship with God. Worldly sorrow, it is like the hypocrite who disfigures his face so that people of the world can be impressed by the agony that they are going through. It is possible, brothers and sisters, for us to really be sorry for what we have done. And for that sorrow to lead us to death. There are several illustrations in the scriptures. Remember Esau. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Esau was profoundly. And it uses the word profoundly sorry or repentant for the foolish thing that he had done. Remember what Esau done, had done. He sold his birthright. He sold the inheritance a bowl of stew and after the deed was done he was sorrowful for what he had done but not in relationship to the Lord in relationship to what he had lost in terms of earthly value how about the most striking example found in the gospel of Matthew do you know who it was who repented it is towards the end of the book And after he had done this deed, received the silver, he becomes very sorrowful. And the Bible uses one of those big Bible words for describing what Judas felt when he betrayed God. The Bible says he repented. And he repented. It was the feeling of Judas after he betrayed the Lord. But his repentance did not lead him to life. His repentance led him to hell. He did not run to the cross of Calvary in godly sorrow. No, he ran to a tree and hung himself. He is the literal 
illustration of this principle that worldly sorrow leads to death. From the tree, he falls down to the ground and his insides explode. He is the illustration. Worldly sorrow leads to death. It does not lead to repentance. It does not lead to reconciliation. It does not lead to communion. We, we must beware of false repentances. We must beware of a false sorrow. Yes, we were confronted, but what did it lead to? Just because we tremble beneath the sound of the gospel does not mean that we've repented. There are many who, when they hear the gospel, they are stirred within. They might even cry, but they never repent. Some may even be seriously and very solemnly affected when they come to the house of God and leave just as hard in their hearts toward God as they were when they entered. Felix stood before Paul, or Paul stood before Felix, Paul with chains on his hands, and he preached righteousness to Felix. He preached temperance to Felix. He preached a judgment to come. And what was Felix's response? Felix trembled. Felix, whew, trembled at the hearing of the gospel. And yet, he procrastinated. He did not believe. And he procrastinated all the way to hell, even though he trembled. Some may tremble. And some may be like Agrippa, who when he heard the, the message of Paul, the Bible says that Agrippa almost was persuaded by Paul to turn to Christ. He heard the message, he heard the truth, and he almost was changed. He almost was converted. And how often has conviction brought you and I to our knees and we have almost repented? But we remain there without repenting. Some go further. They hear a sermon. They practice what they think is repentance. They renounce certain vices. Tears flow for what they have done. They weep before God. And yet, with all of that, their repentance is a temporary repentance. And they go back to their sins. Hell is scary, is it not? But let us not be more afraid of damnation than offending our holy God. We're afraid of hell, but we're not afraid of our sin. We're afraid of being cast into the pit, but not afraid to harden our hearts against God's word and his commands. Spurgeon asked this and wondered. He said, I wonder if hell were extinguished, if our repentance would also be extinguished. Some wish that there was no hell, he said, that God would not punish the wicked, he said. Some would be delighted if hell did not exist and if God himself did not exist. Why? So they can indulge in their sin without any consequence. We love our sin, but hate the consequence. No, we should love our God and have no fear of any condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
One of the things that Paul was concerned about was that the church would have this worldly sorrow and not be restored to Christ. And he is relieved. He is praising God because of the work that has been done in them. They have passed worldly sorrow and they have gone straight to a godly repentance. Godly sorrow sees God's law, that it has been infringed, that God's love has been abused. And this melts the soul to tears. But our souls would drown there if it were not for the anchor of faith tossed by the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pulls us out of that sorrow and says, stand upon me and you will be saved. Do not stay in the sorrow without repenting and placing your faith in the one who can save you from your sin. Let me also say this for those uh, men and maybe even some women who don't normally cry. It's not your sorrow that saves you. Not your tears that save you. While there must be some at least acknowledgement of the wretchedness of our own souls, eternal life is beyond us. It's at the cross. It's not our wounds, but his wounds. Not our griefs, but his griefs. Not our tears, but it is his blood. That saves us. Number three. Have you confessed your sins? We did that this morning, did we not? What do you do, I wonder, during that time of confession? Is it your catnap? Is it your time to close your eyes briefly before you must keep them open? All that Paul had against his church was true. They had been confronted for their sin, and their response was a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Yes, What was your prayer after last week's sermon? Was there a time in which alone with God you confessed your sins before God? And what is confession? Is it merely saying, I've sinned, I admit it? No. No, it is not. Confession is far more than admission. Listen to what it is. It is self-accusation. I wonder if you've ever heard that. Confession is self-accusation. It is accusing myself. I am the guilty one. The blood is on my hands. I am the culprit. We accuse ourselves. Why? So that Satan cannot. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he waits in that courtroom to point his finger at you and we beat him to the punch and we say oh no not just that Satan far more than you know far more than you understand when someone comes to you and really has an offense to you I think it would be a humble thing for us to say brother or sister not only have I done what you have said I have done far more and I am truly truly sorry The one sin that someone brings up against us, we build up our walls. And not only do do we do that, we cut them off from our lives. Instead, when they bring to you all of their offenses, say yes, yes, and so much more. You don't know the half of it. But no one can force you to do that. You must see it. You must be sorrowful over it. 
And brothers and sisters, this is a work of God, the Holy Spirit. It must flow out of a work, a holy work done by God alone in the hearts of his elect. And confession is sincere. It is not hypocritical. It is the hypocrite who confesses his sin, but loves his sin. It's, it's like the thief who confesses, I've stolen the goods, but I loved stealing every single one of them. And I would have stolen more if I would not gotten caught. No. It is not continually look back at sin. It, it runs from sin. It wants to be as far from sin as it can be. It does not keep looking back with longing for sin. It does not keep looking back saying, I, I will miss you. I, I will always love you. Sincere confession of sin is not afraid that they've left their sin too soon. Do you know those who say, I'm not ready? I've still got more that I, they still have more sin that they would love to indulge in. I'm not ready. They're not afraid, true confession. They're not afraid that they, there was just a little more sin they could have squeezed out of that sin before they finally left it all behind. And that is what some people think they must do in order to finally repent. I will squeeze every single ounce of sin out of sin before I finally repent of my sin. No, my brother. No, my friend, that is not repentance. And you will not be saved when you say finally, okay, I've gotten it all out. Oh, you say, I don't want any more of it. I want nothing more of it. Confession feels the weight of sin. It feels how it displeases the master, how it has uh, disrupted their fellowship with God, and it is convinced of sin. It abhors sin. Confession feels the weight. And like David says, this is too much for me to carry. A true confession also does not generalize their sin. It's simply saying, I've sinned. What have you done? I've sinned. We must not say, I confess my sins and yet not know our sins. We must not say, I've sinned and not remember our sins. Or as one false confessor once said, I've never done anything really wrong. When you come to the surgeon, you know what area needs to be repaired. It's not, there's something there, fix it. No, fix that. I can't walk now. I can barely move. We know our sin. We've addressed our sin. We feel sorry for our sin. We are honest with what it is and how it is ruining our lives. Particularize it. I've put other gods before you. I've worshipped and made false idols and worshipped them, given them glory that only you deserve. I've taken your name in vain in so many ways. I've not honored your day. I've not loved you. With all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. I've not obeyed and loved your law. I've not loved your word. I've tried to make my own path. I've set up myself as one to worship rather than you. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, 
And if we confess, we must resolve not to commit those sins again. Don't let them grow again. It's vain to confess that we've sinned only to continue to sin. To sin in the ways that we've confessed that we've sinned. Pharaoh. Pharaoh confessed, I've sinned. And then time and time again hardened his heart toward that same sin. Origen calls confession, listen to this, the vomit of the soul. Whereby the conscience is eased of that burden which did lie upon it. Imagine when you confess, you are, you, you are as it were, and if I could say, regurgitating all of those things that you have done that have offended God. You are pouring them out. Luther used to pray for hours upon hours and think of even all of the things. Those of you who love the movie Goonies, and I don't mean to make this a, a light moment, but it's the only one that I can think of at the moment. You remember Chunk? When he is confessing, and then that one time, and then the other time, and then there once when I was in second grade, it is a, a regurgitating of every single thing that you can ever think of that you've done before God that has violated His law, that has violated His holiness. Now then, if we confess our sins, if we, as it were, confess and regurgitate, why would we run back like a dog to that vomit to find out what we can still take, what's still edible, the thought? No, we confess and we make no excuses. Oh, may I say this to you? Make no excuses. M my wife used to say to me, own it. Make no excuses. Make no excuses. I confess I've sinned. Help me to be better. I confess I've sinned. Don't pass the buck. Confession gives glory to God. It, is, it humbles the soul. It eases our weariness. It purges our sin. Do not say, I've sinned. But you should have done something about my sin. I've sinned. But you could have helped me in this area. That's not confession. That's saying, hey, I, you got some responsibility. Take the responsibility. I've done it. It's been me. It's me. I'm the problem. It gives glory to God. The sinner who confesses can say, if I am a sinner, then how precious will the blood of Christ be to me? Confession makes a way for you to be given, forgiven for your sin. When the prodigal son confessed his sin, his father's heart melted. And what does he do? He kisses his son. He clothes his son. And he has a great celebration where his son was lost and now he is found. Number four. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? Does it make you sick? Christ can never truly be loved until sin is truly loathed. Until sin is truly hated. You cannot long for heaven until you hate sin. That's why we should long for heaven. 
Oh, that the wrestling would end. Oh, that the battle would finally be won. You cannot love His law until you hate sin. You cannot love His church until you hate sin. You cannot love His day until you hate sin. Love His table. Love His baptism. Love His word. Love fellowship with Him until you hate sin. You must say like the apostle, who will save me from this body of death? I hate sin. Remove it. Put it to death. Purge me of sin. And hatred for sin is universal. It's hatred for all sin. It doesn't get to pick and choose what sin it likes and what sin it hates. Watson said it does not not hate lust but love coveting. It does not hate lying but love adultery. No, it hates all sin. It hates all sin. All things against God and His Word it hates. But we say, but love the sinner, right, Pastor Antonio? No, actually. God says, I hate sin and I hate the sinner. Well, let me say, God hates the sinner. How, How in the world is that possible that God hates sin and the sinner? said to my wife recently in our time of worship, Christ. Actually, I think she's the one who said it to me. Is the answer Christ? The answer, honey, is always Christ. How can God hate sinners and hate sin? Because of one who stands in the place of them, Christ. That's how. Christ and Christ alone. And that's why we can sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Dear ones, do you hate sin? Do you hate the wrestling? Do you hate the war? Then let us conclude with our final point. Then turn from your sin. Then turn from your sin. Some may think that repentance simply means to change one's mind, for that is the the Greek definition of the word. It does mean change one's mind, a change of mind. But what kind of a change of mind? It is nothing less than changing one's mind, and yet it is far greater than changing one's mind. It is a change, an entire change, a total change of the mind. It is a turning of the mind right around. It is hating the things that you once loved. And now loving the things that you once hate. It forms different judgments from what we used to have before. It no longer puts bitter for sweet or sweet for bitter or darkness for light and light for darkness. It dies to sin. It puts away sin in the depths of our heart. And this repentance, it's not a one-time act. It's not I repented 20 years ago. I have repented. I am repenting, and I will continue to repent of sin. We have not yet arrived. We will repent of sin again and again and again until Christ returns or calls you home. I have much greater for sorrow, great, greater sorrow for sin today than I had when I was first saved, rescued by Christ 20 years ago. I hate sin much more intently than I did when I was first convicted of my sin. Some of the things that that I did not know were a sin back then, I know to be a sin now, and therefore I strive by the power of the Spirit to be rid of them. 
Zacchaeus. I think I can, Brother Bobby might not, not like me hearing this or hear me saying this, I think I can identify with Zacchaeus, the very short man. For this very small, short man wanted to see Jesus. And he climbs up a tree just so that he might get a glimpse of him. And not only does he see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. And he calls him down. Zacchaeus, come down. For today I will have dinner with you at your house. And Zacchaeus is, he is amazed. He is overjoyed that the prophet of God has invited him. Did Zacchaeus invite him? That's a case for those of you who want to make a case for the doctrines of grace. Zacchaeus did not invite Jesus. Jesus invited himself. I am coming to your house today. And I will eat with you. Oh, and Zacchaeus' response was, looking around to all of those who knew that he was a tax collector, who knew that he was a sinner, who knew that he had swindled and stole from virtually everyone in the town and says to, him, to everyone today, I give back everything that I have stolen with interest. And what was Christ's response? It was, truly, salvation has come to your house. It was not a half turn. It was a full turn. It was a godly sorrow that produced repentance. And Christ says, that is true life. It was a complete turn. And notice, Jesus did not say, I will give you time to go clean up your house. Don't we all love that? I know at my house, you need to let me know the week before you're coming over. <laughs> we must have an entire sweeping of the... He did not say, I'll wait for you to clean up, and then I'll come over. He does not wait for you and I to make ourselves acceptable to him. He does not wait for us to clean up ourselves. We're not Roman Catholics. So that then we might be acceptable to God. I am coming to your house and no matter what kind of mess you have made there, when I arrive, that mess will not remain much longer. The man was transformed because he learned that there is forgiveness with the Lord. Repentance, let me say to you, it's never perfect. Never. Not in our mortal state. We never get perfect faith. To the sense, in the sense that we are never perfect from doubting. We are always doubt. Don't you doubt? Don't you have fears? But don't you have faith? Yes, you do. Then why do I have faith and have doubt? Because you are living in this sinful fallen world. It will never be perfect. It will always be progressive. And brothers and sisters, that's the, the, the important word. I am progressing, though. I am much better today than I was yesterday. Oh, I am not what, what I know you would like me to be. But I am much better than I used to be. I, as a pastor, I have high standards for myself. And there are high standards that people have of me. Oh, dear Lord, and when I am not Jesus Christ in the flesh, there is great sadness. But listen, I'm progressing. I am better today than I was yesterday. And I think that you can say along with me that you are better today than you were yesterday. And to God be the glory for that. We never get repentance right. Or it's never perfect. There's always some hardness in our heart. 
Repentance is a continual lifelong act, and it will grow continually. We will be repenting until Christ returns or calls us home. And that really is the Christian life. It is this sinning, repenting, being shown grace. Sinning, repenting, being shown grace. Sinning, repenting, being shown grace and growing from it. (coughs) Failing, and then failing again, but failing better. That is the repetition and pattern of the Christian life. And what a grace of God it is. What a grace of God it is. That we would sin, repent even, for it is a grace of God. And be given given grace for our repentance. In that repentance. In the same way, in closing, brothers and sisters, we ask God to increase our faith. Ask him to increase our hatred for, for sin. And our desire to repent of it. How do you know that you repented? How do you know? Has it lasted? That's how you know. Has there been any lasting change? Then you've repented. I will turn from my sin. Did you turn? Maybe not perfectly, but did you turn? I will join a church. Have you stayed? I will love my spouse. Has your love for them grown? I will be a faithful witness. Is your light shining? Is it lasting? Repentance is a gift from God. It is one of those... as. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, it is one of those spiritual favors which ensure eternal life. It is the marvel of divine mercy that it not only provides the way of salvation, it not only invites men to receive grace, but it makes us willing to be saved. God punished his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our sins. And there in Christ, he has provided salvation for all of his lost children. We cannot contemplate the cross without a broken heart. Oh, what joy. He's not in here, so. What joy I had the other day in explaining to my son the beatings that Christ took before he was placed upon the cross. And where was the joy? In seeing sorrow in my son's eyes. In seeing the the tears that welled up around his large brown eyes. And he said, how could they do that? And I said, I know, my son. Oh, we cannot see the cross without feeling some kind of sorrow. We look to Christ. And if we look to him, we will be saved. What an amazing sacrifice he's provided for us. That Jesus died to save sinners. You want faith? He gives it. You want repentance? He gives it. You want everlasting life? He gives it. Come to Christ. And you may sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die for me. Here's my advice, brothers and sisters. Repent and look to Jesus. And may the blessed giver of all repentance unto salvation guard you from false repentance which I have described. 
And may he give to you repentance that leads to life. And man may repent entirely through the voice of mercy, which I pray that you have. Some hearts God opens by faith in the case of Lydia. And others he assaults with a sledgehammer of wrath to come. Spurgeon said, some he opens with the picklock of grace and some with the crowbar of the law. The question is, has he gotten in? I pray that you repent, that you turn from your sin, that it would be lasting, that you would turn to Christ and that you would rejoice in the salvation that he has provided at the cross. Let us pray.